On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. You are on the house list. Thank you for coming back and listening. I appreciate it. This is a very modest little project that I'm doing, totally DIY on my own. With the help of generous assistance in editing and engineering uh, with my old friend CJ Stewart, we're doing the first few shows together all at once because I live in New York, he lives in California, and honestly, I don't, I'm, I don't know how to edit properly. I don't have the time or head space. I'm doing all the interviews and recording all the interviews. I do them all face-to-face with a little handheld recorder, and that's been working out pretty great. Most all of these have been recorded in a completely different location different setting time of day it's just um, putting it all together with people that I have worked with in the past old friends and so far just folks in the music industry and for the most part you know I guess it should be known the origin of the title the house list really comes from the guest list at a at a venue at a music venue or a club um, and if you are you know you have a friend playing or you have a friend that works at the in the box office or that's a booking agent or a talent buyer or the GM of the club or as a bartender um, and you want to go see a show or see a friend's show or you're a journalist or some shit like that and you want to need to see a band um, oftentimes you're you know you'll be put on a guest list if it's necessary, and in most cases, it would be considered the house list, and that's kind of the origin. And and, and for I've put my fair share of people on uh, various house lists over the years, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that may or may not be listening that can attest to that. So I wanted to give a little bit of backstory into that name that I chose to make this with. Um, so yeah, here we are. Um, on this episode, um, we're going to go back to my very first interview that was done specifically for this project, and that was with my man, Koti Mundi, in Los Angeles. This was the very first one I was able to do. I flew out to L.A. a little while ago with the hopes of doing a bunch of them, and of course, you know, for one reason or another, stuff falls through or timing doesn't work out and I was able to do two on that trip Koti Mundi and Matt Deal Koti 
is an incredible artist and actor, musician and composer who lives in Southern California. He spends part of his time in LA and part of his time in Temecula, but he is a native New Yorker. He was born in Manhattan and we talk about his childhood and, and his seminal work with Dr. Buzz's Savannah Band and Kid Creole and the Coconuts, as well as, and what is most important to me is his solo work, which is, I think, completely incredible and unique and, and um, worth seeking out. And you might have to do a little digging to find his stuff. He's only done two solo albums. And we talk a little bit about that. We talk about his acting. He's been in a bunch of Spike Lee movies, and he was um, he made his debut on Miami Vice. And it was a great conversation. I uh, uh, you know I, I will apologize if the atmospheric sound may be distracting to some. I'd like to think that it adds a lot to the story itself because we recorded it all in McDonald's on the same microphone that I'm talking into right now. We sat in McDonald's on Sunset Boulevard and in a corner and there's people in and out and and um, we had this conversation and I thought it was incredible and I'm really happy to finally be getting it out there. And Koti, if you're listening, I hope you like it. And if you're a fan of his music, I think you're really going to love this. If you never heard of him before, I think by the end of it, you'll really be interested in, in learning more about him and his career. So without any more delay, and I appreciate your time very much, let's check out my conversation with Koti Mundi here on The House Lists. Thank you. We can, we can maybe even talk about really how you got to L.A. in the first place, though, yeah, right? Because, yeah. I mean, you, you are a uh, native New Yorker. Correct. So, but was it that you got here from touring? Was it playing when, when you were doing music, playing? Is, are we interviewing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right, here's the deal. I lived out in L.A. in the 70s. When I was with Dr. Buzz's original Savannah band, we're all from Spanish Harlem in the Bronx. Right. You remember the group? Of, we of course, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So once we got our record deal, right. and then once the record was released and it became big time, we made, all, we made a ton of money. So we decided to do our follow-up record in Los Angeles. We had come out to L.A., to do TV shows. Our first TV show we did was Tony Orlando and Dawn. Right. Then we did Dinah Shore Show and a bunch wow. of TV shows. So then we ex started Experience LA and we kind of, those moments we dug in, right. we enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, everything. So we were mesmerized by the big scoring stages for film. At Burbank University. Right, the, like sound, sound, sound stages. stages. Right. So we wanted to do our second album at the soundstage. Mm. And part of the allure of doing it is, like I would see all these films being scored, Jaws, uh, incredible big time films, because we had access to it, because we were doing right. our album. There. So we did what, it. There. What was the lot? Do you remember, was it Warner Brothers? Burbank, or? Okay. Uh, Burbank Warner Brothers. All right. Warner Brothers lot. 
you have the big sound stage and and you have the big symphonic orchestras and right. the score and everything like that. So that's what we wanted to do was to do a record there. And when we did our orchestrations, we got some of the big name Hollywood music arrangers right. for those films and everything to work on our records. How did that even fall into place? Was it just that you had met them in those at those TV appearances? We went or? after them. We okay. just told management, find these guys. Amazing. And we want to work with them. Right. And so, because our first album sold so much, made millions of dollars, we were in position right. to talk to these people and get them and hire them to do stuff. So we had some of the top orchestrators in the business hmm. and we would do things live so the orchestras the sound stages were so big and the st strings and horns all done at the same time for our record and everything like that so in order to do the second album we had to live out here right. Oh, okay. right, right. especially in those days it just takes forever to do a record right. and once you've had any kind of success Especially when you're young and you're 20s. You tend to exaggerate your importance. <laughs> so right. We says, yeah, we're going to do an album here in the sound stage and everything. But the trick, the rub in all this is that it costs money that you have to pay eventually. Right. It's not exactly cash exchange, but you, you pay it back uh, for sure. You got the button counters, the bean counters, and it's in there in the back. You don't sell the album, you pay. <laughs> and when when you don't sell records, your whole world changes drastically. And it comes at you like war, almost. Not to compare it, but people start taking your cars away start taking your homes away you start paying it that way when you don't sell that second record didn't sell but the point is that that's how I lived out here in LA originally Once I, when I visited LA I loved it when I started living out here I hated it mm. what part where, where were you back then like where, when you first we lived, settled in uh, we first started living in West Hollywood and then from there we moved to was it like the band living everyone like in the house all the players and well originally what we did we lived in a hotel right. on Sunset Street Sunset Boulevard and after about a, a couple of months of living there we realized it wasn't cost effective or right. what I call the adults the people taking care of us right. saying hey it's not cost effective to live in a hotel right. you get your own place out there. so then we started getting our own places uh, initially we did room together. <laughs> I laugh only because I, we, that only lasted one day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we got together for one day and realized we don't really want to live with each other. So then we all got our own places. Okay. Literally only lasted a day or two. We try to be poetic about it. Let's live together, do the record, and from a romantic POV, right. it sounded good. But from a realistic POV, it wasn't happening. Right, right. So that's when I first came out, and that sure. was in the 70s. After that, I kept coming here on and off at adventures. As, I, as, I, as New York started becoming kind of 
for me tired and old and expensive. I then in the 90s wasn't quite ready to live out here, but I wanted to feel it out. So financially I was okay in the 90s. I had been doing a lot of stuff, so I was able to get a place in LA and a place in New York. So for quite a few years I was bi-coastal. Mm. Then I ended the LA situation and just strictly New York. And then in the early 2000s, I said, let me make the move. Because like in the 90s, that's when you, you, you had shifted already more into acting and less music right, at that time. Right, I was doing more, more work with them, both as an actor and writing music for film. Right. So those things were going on. So I was going back and forth from New York to LA. Then eventually, I just said, let me just make the move just in terms of a personal living situation. I also have family out here, and, and New York was just getting hectic and very not artist-friendly. Mm. All the neighborhoods that have seemed to be more orientated towards business people, right. accountants, lawyers, so Ford Green, Dumbo, Manhattan areas, the East Village, the Lower East Side is just all becoming gentrified and cleaned up, which is okay. I, I can understand that angle. At the same time, it was just moving out the artists. Right. Because you, were you, you were born uh, uptown, or you were born in Manhattan? Yes. The Bronx? No, yeah. Spanish art. Right. Spanish art. No, I wasn't. I was born in New York, but right. I grew up in Spanish. Right. Art. But my stomping grounds was the South Bronx and Spanish Harlem, and sometimes Brooklyn. Right. So anyway, I, it just seems like it wasn't quite planned, but it just happened where one day I said, hey, boom, I'm off to California. Mm. And that was it. I've been here ever since. And I will go back and forth, but every time I go back to New York, I realize the only thing I really miss in New York are certain friends. Right and certain family members. Then I had moved my parents out to California. Oh, okay. And dealt with that. And then I would just go back to New York for professional reasons. Occasionally to visit. So when you got to the point of doing the, that first solo record, which is really like, I know there was such a, a, a great amount of musical history leading up to that, clearly, with the two previous groups, but you know my the um, twelve year twelve oh, year old 12 genius. Year genius. Okay. Yeah. So that's like really my um, benchmark for for you as like an artist on your own. You know, like actually the, before that, the, if, if anything, would be the Que Pasa Mi No Papa. Right, which is not, that was a shorter, but like a, not a was that not was a full. Just, it was just it was a twelve inch. Right, it's like two songs at once, but it was a twelve inch. And it was under the Kicker and the Coconuts presents right. Koti Mundi. So, but that was my first foray into being a solo artist. Before that, it was Savannah Van Kicker. Strangely enough, that record, which was an offshoot, we, for marketing reasons, put Kicker and the Coconuts presents Koti Mundi. But it wasn't initially a Kicker and the Coconut record, it was my solo record. Working with August Darnell and Z Records and all those people involved, so then we just threw Kicker in the Coconuts, and that is that record is really what established Kicker in the Coconuts overseas. That started mm. making noise. So this actually was the first 
sort of to speak single to right. propel Kid Gridla Kokolas. Interesting. That was the, but that was still in New York era for you too, even recording that, right? That that album. I'm sorry. Was it that was still like you? You still did that while you were living in New York. It's, oh yeah, it yeah, such yeah, a yeah. New York yeah, kind of 80s. raw yeah, that feel. That was '81. But before that, it was I was with Kid Gridla Kokolas right. and. Um, and still being a, a sort of a group member, and same thing with Savannah Band. But throughout the years, I wanted to keep growing and expanding, and so that was my first foray into that situation. And then came the 12 Year Genius, which was really on the coattails of the success of Kick Cream and Coconuts. Yeah, but it's it's a, if you listen to it out of out of context, and you're not like. Uh, you know, versed in, in, in the, you know, there's a pretty big discography for Kid Creole in, in the Coconuts, obviously. Right. I mean, it's a big, very influential group. But if you somehow stumble into your record alone as its own thing, which I think some people did, and I feel like I've, I got more into that than with the big band stuff, you know. It's just, um, <clears throat> it obviously has a very different kind of, um, life and landscape as a project. Plus, it's just you did most of the production on it, right? Or right, all the songwriting. I, right, I produced it and I wrote all the songs. It was ten songs. I wrote nine of the ten songs. I, and I did a cover of a Captain Beefheart song, right. "Tropical Hot Dog Night." So yeah, that was all my. It was. It gave me an opportunity to. See what was inside of me, and back in those days, there weren't, weren't computers or anything, so all the ideas and everything lived inside of you. There was no way of seeing how they would actually sound until you right. really did it. Right. So while I was with Kid Krilla Coconuts, that half that album I did on my own before I even got the deal. Okay. So when I got the deal, I was ready to go. All I needed was a few more songs, but I was investing my own money. I had with partners in a recording studio and that record I did uh, the musicians including the string players and everything the horn players all did it on spec for me oh amazing and the reason I was able to do that was because I was uh, using horns and strings for Kid Creole projects and other different projects and I got to be friendly with a lot of the musicians and they says hey if you ever need help with anything so I says look I'm doing my own album so I got this group called String Fever girl named Jill Jaffe supported me on it and uh, it was all women's string players oh wow so Amazing. that whole album is all females on strings no way really oh wow incredible including uh, Marin Alsop I don't know I'm you not know. familiar with her no she is one of the top conductors in the world really she was part of that string so I had really great players there and this is all just comes from from goodwill of working goodwill and then Charles O'Gon would contract all the horn players for me. Now, Charles Gump was a sax player in Kid Creole, but I met him be outside of Kid Creole, and I brought him into the Kid Creole loop. Right. And so he says, if you need help with anything, back, they, back in those days, it wasn't so mercenary right. as it may be now. But because I've used these people and work and everything like that, so I didn't hesitate to ask for a favor. So they did it for me on spec. So basically, it was on a handshake. If, wow. I, if I get a deal, I'll pay you guys sure. this much money and everything like that. Sure enough, and so I did maybe five, six tracks. 
Then I got my deal. I got an advance. Finished the album and paid everybody for what work they done and the new work. Wow. What was their label again, too? It was originally on Virgin Records, right. my solo record. The great thing about it was that the player says, boy, it's one of the rare times we actually get paid for doing something on <laughs> That's amazing. But the great thing about it is that these musicians were top professional musicians that were working all the time. Right. But they were doing certain kind of work that was okay and they might enjoy it, but to work on my album was something out of the beaten path for them, something yeah, different clearly. and everything like that. So, so it was really a great, great, great experience, great adventure. Yeah, and, I mean, it's and I was so happy that I was, I got the deal and I was able to pay them. All right, absolutely. And everything, and then after that, I, anytime I had work, I would just use the same people. Oh, cool. And, and do those type of things. Yeah, I mean, it's such, um, it's like a such an angst. It's like a very angsty. Um, album, you know, but it has like this, like, it's almost like a Broadway, like, uh, Calypso funk, but with this, like, real, like, the subject matter is real, like, has a dark underbelly to it, you know, like. Right, well, here's the thing, I'm very over-the-top theatrical personality on stage, right. and I wanted to see if I could capture that on vinyl, so, mm -hmm. well, not back then, vinyl. Yeah, it was fine. Yep. <laughs> right. So here's the thing also. I've always had never let the lack of talent stop me from doing things. Right. I was not a singer. I was not anything. When I first started out, I was basically a viable phone player. Right, then I right. just had to collect for my toolkit different things in order for me to survive in the business. Right. And I did that album I had no confidence in my voice as a singer. Right. I actually still don't. So I feel like I had to focus or accent other things. Right. That's why. Well, I like the humor too is amazing. I mean, it's a, it's right. like it's a comedy. It's like a com musical comedy. Exactly. Exactly. So it was like, hey, I'm Danny Kaye. I'm Bob Hope. I'm, right. I'm not Frank Sinatra. Right. Okay. So let me add these theatrical things to it. And yeah, you may not like my singing, but I'm not here trying to croon you, okay? Right, right. I'm just trying to present a whole package, horns, strings, right. humor, and subtle messages yeah. along the thing. So on, underneath the smile, there's the frown. Right. So I try to throw those things in. And because it was all in my mind, it was, in a way, experimental. I didn't know how these things were going to come out. Very experimental. And, yeah. I, and, and I was doing it on the go. So, what, what do you mean? Like it was just a song here, a song there, or well, like? Well, I would do the orchestrations, and then I saw that it was going a different direction than what I thought would, it would be inside my mind. Right. So then I had to ad adapt to that. So you're doing a rhythm section in the studio, and you think it's going to come out a certain way, and then it's going a whole different direction. So you go with the flow on that. All right, okay, we'll slow it up, or we'll speed it up. Let me change the chords here. Right. Let me change the rhythm here. Sometimes you write things that are not practical, that can't actually be captured, or certain things that are not meant for the personality you have there. It might have meant for some 18th century musicians in Hungary right. or something. So then I have to then change my vocals and change my lyric and that on the go. It was not like I was doing demos and see how it goes and that. 
So that's the story behind that solo album. Which how, how did they even like? What? How did Virgin um, even wrap their head around it? Like when you turned it in, well, I mean, they, obviously they, it must be a tricky thing to it market. Was, and it was. It didn't do well at all commercially, and they were expecting Kid Cream of Coconut success and that direction. I had some champions inside the company that liked it and everything like that, but they didn't really know what they were getting. It was more of a business decision for them to give me the record deal. First of all, Que Pasamino Papa was a big hit in, in England where Virgin Records was headquartered. So I've already okay. shown that I could do some stuff there. Then Kick Cream the Coconuts was very successful. Right. So they gave me the deal, not based on anything I showed them. It was just based on that history mm-hmm. and that success. I had been on the cover of Face Magazine, which is one. I was one of the very few people that had been on the cover of Face Magazine that was not a solo artist at the time. Mm. It was a sideman, sort of, a sidekick. Yeah, I mean, maybe that. that's how some may have tr- identified with you, but I mean, you're also like this kind of larger-than-life character, too, like, in, in the context of that, too. Right, right. So, for them to see me on uh, face and not having an album or anything right. like that, it was all part of the Kid Creel thing. So, the fact that I had a big enough personality that Face Magazine would put me in the cover, and then some other people follow suit, that's how I got my deal. Nice. And, but I didn't hide anything. They all heard, they heard my song, Kid Pasa, you know, Papa, they heard me as a singer, plus I did some solo uh, some of the Kid Crew records I sang right. and those things so it wasn't like I came off like Luther Vandross or something <laughs> like that so, so they but they still there were like um, you know even looking on YouTube there's obviously like some great m- moments captured from that era too with like the French and German TV appearances right, and then right. there was you know I was trying to find this vi- the music video for um, for the second single uh, that didn't Don Letts produce a music video for you, or is, oh, uh, Como Stars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's yeah. the story with that? Because I was always intrigued by that video. It's just a very New York, very raw, like raw. almost on Super 8 film or something like that. Or well, that turned out to be the first single, and that was the record company's decision and my decision that let's do that. So, being the first single, the promotion machine right. is behind it. Right, right. So it gave me a budget for video and everything like that. And, uh, Did you write the video too? Was it your concept? It was my concept right. along with Lori Eastside who was a choreographer there and who was also a uh, female leasing at Kick Crew in the early years. So we, we came together with Don Letts on that. Don Letts was recommended to me by Virgin Records. Oh, okay, I see. Interesting. So, and also I knew about him through Joe Strong. And did you guys, did me. you know him? Yeah. yeah. I, I, just through the scene, right. I had met Joe and Mick. So they were friends and everything right. like that. So it was kind of uh, a synergy that was happening. And actually, Mick from The Clash, his first wife was in the video. Oh yeah, yeah. He was there one hanging the out. Dancers. There was like a scene. He, he's one of in the scenes in the bar. She's right, the blonde baby, right, and the right. beautiful blonde baby. Right. Yeah. Did you guys do shows together ever? Like back then, were there no, any collaborations? No, we just went in the scenes when they came over to Bonds and played there. Bonds um, International. Right, yeah. and so I met them, and then they were fans of Kid Criminal Coconuts, cool. and 
then I would remember one time hanging out at uh, uh, some Bob Gruen event. I'm hanging out with Joe Strom and everything like that. And at the Ritz, I just met him on the right. scene. I don't know exactly the how we met initially. So every time he would come into town, and then it got to a point I'll go to England. I don't drink alcohol at all. I only drank a Guinness beer once. <laughs> that's with Joe Strom. Wow, that's I went cool. To, that's I amazing. Was in, I was in London, and... I called him up and he said, I'll oh, come over here, beautiful townhouse. And then he took me to a local pub. Right. He says, You're going to drink this, man. I said, No, I don't drink basically. He basically forced me to drink wow, it. Right? And, I, and so, such a cool guy. And, and what he like, and we speak Spanish because he spoke fluent Spanish. Did he? Right. Because hmm. he, he used to hang out in Spain all the time hmm. and stuff like that. So. That's so, uh, yeah, really cool guy. May he rest in peace. Yeah. So anyway, mm. Don Letts then did the thing, and um, okay. and we talked about it and everything. And, yeah. and Don Letts was into K. Curry, was into me and everything like that. So yeah. he basically wanted to do it. And everything yeah. Like Great guy also. Uh, I mean, at that time in New York, you must have been like a real... I mean, obviously the nightlife was so full of like these really uh, incomparable like characters, you know, that are at the clubs. And I would just just looking back at those videos too, and there's this like amazing that video that from Washington Square Park too, which you might you, you know what I'm talking about. The yeah. it just uh, captures such a moment where like uh, well, even that back in those days, it was. You do it on the go. Right. So we had Kid Crew and the Coconuts, and I did my solo, I get Pasamino, Popeye, and then my friend, Ed Steinberg, he says, Let's, I want to do a video on you. He started Rock America. So at that time, before MTV, they used to distribute videos to the clubs. Right. Show them on the screen and everything like that. So he has started this company that would do this distribution to different clubs, and the record companies would pay him to do these videos, and then he would distribute mm, them. Like a, almost like a record pool or something like that? Like, yeah, yeah, but it's like for it was videos. for videos. Interesting. So hmm. he came up to me. I, I had no budgets for video or anything like that. Right. I was with Z Records, which wasn't a big record company. Kid Creel was. So we would do very modest videos right. and everything like that. So... Uh, he came up to me to do a video. I said, well, I, I can't pay you anything or whatever. And there's really no budget from the record company for the video. He says, oh, I'll do it for free and all that. Just let me distribute it to the clubs okay. and everything like cool. that. So that's how he, he would make his pennies. So in terms of the concept, I just says, uh, brother, let's just turn on the camera. We'll go to different locations. So that Washington Square Park video... We must have done 10 takes there. Oh, wow, okay. Because you're all over the park. I mean, I'm all like over the park, but what people don't right. know is that we did that same thing all over the city. I did it in Spanish Harlem. I did it up at a voice club. We did it in different locations. Mm. Washington Square Park turned out to be the most vibrant, energetic part, right. and it had all these people, and it just turned out to be, yeah, this is the one. Right. But all day I was shooting that video, just like that. And I said, just turn on the camera, and I improv. I just totally improv, whatever. And, and we thought we would edit it where we'll have pieces from all the different locales. Right, of course, right. But it just seemed to work in Washington Square Park. And then <laughs> I just said, look, okay, we had maybe a little production value. 
and go into the studio. So there's a part in the scene where we cut out and when I go, me no pop, I, I, I got little gun, water guns, and you see the le letters written out, me no pop, right. I, you know, I was royal. That was our big production, <laughs> right. CGI type of thing. <laughs> we didn't really need to do that, but I, I wanted to have it so that when people say, oh, like, like they put a little something other than just right. this guerrilla style of performing out in the streets. So that's the story behind that. So were you at, when did you, how did you start acting around, were you acting as well in that, during that time? Because you shifted kind of into appearances and stuff, right? Right, right, right. Well, the acting to me started when I was five or six years oh, old. Oh, cool. Right. Before I did music. I like to entertain. Like most kids. Uncle comes over, aunt comes over, ham it up for them, right. anything like that. Except that I didn't really have any skills of talent. I just did it because I wanted to see people laugh and smile. And I always had a, a look to do it. So much that when I was in school, like six years old, I was in the choir. But I couldn't sing. But they liked the way I look and the way I smile and everything. Oh. They put me in the corner. He just says, don't sing anything. Just move your mouth. And I went with that. Wow. So I went <laughs> just my mouth. I have this right. energy, even at six years old, that the school liked. But I could not sing. So did you that. did you recognize that back then? Like, you're like, this. oh, this. Is, I feel, like, comfortable in this. No, place. no. I just like to entertain. That's what I did recognize. And But I didn't say, look, I'm an entertainer. Right. I just went and did it. Right. So I really think that's where it started. Now, before Kid Crew and the Coconuts, before Savannah Band, I was what I call a serious musician. Right. I played vibes and keyboards in different, for different bands, salsa bands, soul bands, and everything like that. And really, I was into trying to be a, without any training, be a serious cat musician, freelancing, get calls on weekends, do all that kind right, of stuff. Right. A self-taught um, vibe Right. Is, well, I, I, I... Actually, I'm not self-taught as a vibraphone player. Okay. I, I studied for a year before I started playing with bands. Oh, but cool. I actually was taking lessons and, and the whole bit. My dad had bought me the vibraphones and at the same time signed me up with a private music teacher. Mm. This private music teacher was named Warren. He taught me so much. He was a Broadway musician, so he taught me all about chords and theory. So after a year, I knew more than all my other friends mm, that were musicians wow. and everything like that. I knew all my progressions and the whole bit scales. Who were you listening to back then? Were you like, was it, were you influenced by, what, who was like Milt, Milt Jackson or, or more jazz or was it more right, from well, a, I was listening to, as Vibus, as Vibus, was Milk Jackson, right. Cal Jada, Bobby Hutchinson. Yeah, Cal Jada, right. My boy George Rodriguez from the New Swing Sestet in terms of Latin. Tommy Berrios, that was with Joe Cuba. Pucho and the Latin Soul Brothers, those cats. And then I was, in terms of orchestras, it was Machito and Tito Puente, Cal mm -hmm. Jada, of course. In terms of music. But I also was really the one guy that really captured my imagination was Lionel Hampton. Mm, yeah, amazing. 
because not only did he play vibes, I saw, man, he's playing piano, he's playing drums, but he had this face, this character on him, and I was really gravitated towards him. And he was the early pioneer of the instrument. Also. Yeah, yeah. In terms of music, Cal Jada was the guy. Right. Incredible. And yeah. then Tito Puente also played vibes. So those guys, in terms of musicianship, Cal Jada could flow with any groove, any right. genre. So could Tito Puente. Right. So those guys. It's such an amazing instrument, too. Yeah. I mean, there's so much uh, um, versatility, I think, with it, too, right? Now, in terms of a performer, I was fascinated by Danny Kay. Mm, because he would do things with his mouth that seemed to me like what I call verbal gymnastics or dramatic verbal projection. Right. <laughs> I fascinated me in terms of being a character, but I know it's man. Like the tongue twisters and all that, right. so I try to work that into into my thing also. It was like scat singing, but more physical than melodic. Like Ella Fitzgerald does those rhythmic melodic right. things. So when I would do little things, I would love to use that kind of thing with my mouth just to. Like I would do like a P alliteration and the polemic principles. We're here at, Mc, at Mickey D's, so I don't want to get too crazy, but I would then go all over and do those kind right. of things. Just I, just just for the fun of it, then I would work it into my one man show that I used to do years back. What was that? What, uh, what, what was that all about? The one man show? This is predates um, any of the. No, no, no. This was in the early 2000s that I oh. started putting that together. Oh, uh, yes. So yes. I, because all along, I'm always trying different things. Sure. As I tell people, I'm always looking for new forms of rejection. I get tired <laughs> of the old ones. So, first it was music, and then I would get rejection, try to get record deals on this, record deals on that, and once in a while something will get through. And then I want to become a songwriter in the thing. Songs don't get released and then become an arranged. I don't get arranged jobs, and so I start getting to acting and then I get rejection there. Sometimes I'll get a couple of jobs here or there. And then um, uh, I started trying to write. Wrote a book, got no deal there, and so. What was the book about? My experience at Facebook. Really? <laughs> That's amazing. So, uh, like learning how to learn to get around Facebook. No. Or just your your human experience dealing uh, with it. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I was always anti-social media. Right. I didn't even know what it was, and I discovered it because I was. I won't get into details now, but I was going through a personal crisis in my life. Okay. And I sort of had to step away from the show business right so as I was dealing with this personal crisis in my life and not and unable to do what I do which is entertain right somebody turned me on to it and, and I was and I saw that I could use this media to entertain people even if it's little vignettes or little posts or little jokes or little stories sure sure and people would instead of just putting pictures up there saying I'm here eating at the cafeteria I've actually will write little vignettes and things of 
fun things that share some behind the scenes tidbits of what's going on in the business and all that stuff. And I saw I was entertaining a lot of people and I would get private messages. Oh, I would also say some... <laughs> I would share certain philosophies and pearls of wisdom. So I try to get that old sage in me out there. Right, right. Stuff. And I would get private messages of people thanking me for doing this and all that. Right. So then that be, I, it became a cyber stage for me to keep doing what I do, which is entertain. Right. So then I wanted to get a compilation of all these things that I wrote on Facebook and then also share how these things came to life. When I post something or a picture and the captions, the true behind story behind of course, I'm. I hate. I love creating, but I hate selling. <laughs> oh, I can understand trying that. Trying to get the deal. So after a couple of rejections, I was like, forget it. Maybe later on I'll pursue it when I write my second book, which will never get released. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I was saying, right. I'm just. When I get bored of getting rejected, I try to go into a new field. Because then I'm jazzed up and everything. Eventually yeah, I get rejected there and I'll find something else. <laughs> That's why I'm getting ready to go into stand-up comedy. But I've actually done that before a long time ago. Yeah? How was the experience the first go at it? Well, it was fun because I, which led to my one-man show. Right. I would do little, just myself on stage. But instead of doing, like, say, a joke way for laugh and all that, I wanted to do things more like what Andy Kaufman did, sure. who's an inspiration, where he has more of a vignette of character. So yeah. I would do those things. And together, after a while, I then put it all together as a one-man show. And I actually put it up in New York 15 years ago or something like that, where I was on stage for an hour and a half doing all different types of characters, but all hmm. tied together as a storyline. Right. And it was a play I did, which I call a performance art play. Okay. So, I love Richard Pryor, Andy Kaufman, and Lenny Bruce. Those, those were my guys. Of course. And um, and also, who passed away, George Carlin. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of things that I was trying to do. And sometimes I go all over the map. I've been accused of having an identity crisis. So. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you were telling, before we really started, you were telling me a little bit about this this newer idea. I mean, are you, do you want to talk about that at all? Like the... Yeah, not yet. Not yet? <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of a long, in that Right, realm, I'm doing in an independent film, and it's going to be about a certain person, a certain character. Right. So... But I can't get into details because yeah, it may fine. never come out or sure. something. Who knows? But you're playing a character. Yeah. 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 I'm playing a character. This, you'll probably be the only one that I even hint at it. Okay. So if it becomes big time, I'm, I'm a big star. I'm on billboards and all that. Then we'll have this interview to right, look back right, on. right, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, some, uh, tell, if you could, I'd love to hear a little bit more about just like some of the that that foray into acting because you know obviously there's some well here, here's the deal here's the thing okay this is what I wanted to tell you before Savannah Band I was like the serious musician try to get gigs here or there I started playing vibes vibes even to this 
day, it's still a rare instrument. A lot of right. people, if I tell them I play vibraphones, they don't know what it is. They will know marimba. They kind of heard that okay. name or xylophone. Yep. Xylophone, right, right. But they don't really know what vibraphones are or vibes, which is the short name. And of what's it, the technical difference between a vibraphone and a xylophone? Is there is there? Yeah, a there is. Uh, vibraphones is made out of metal bars. Right. Whereas xylophones and marimba are made out of wood. Right. Okay, right. Vibraphones, you have an electro electric element to it which allows a certain resonation of vibration whereas marimbas is just you can't sustain the note unless you roll it or anything like that and then the xylophone is just a different higher tone of the marimba Mm -hmm. marimba can go all the way down in terms of the scales and everything very popular in mariachi bands in South America so the instrument is was very rare in the 70s and late 60s when I started. I started as a teenager. So after a while, the way I used to work, because there wasn't too many bands, like if you play drums or guitar or some horn, you get work. Right. But vibraphones, there were very few bands that had vibraphones in them. Right. In the 40s, they had more bands. In the 40s, during the jazz era, you would see the instrument more. In the 50s, you didn't see it at all. And then in the 60s, you would see it in certain Latin bands, like sextet and jazz bands. But for the most part, the instrument was not very popular. I wouldn't recommend anybody to take it up. I would tell them, take up accordion, guitar, (laughs) or drums. um, It's it's heavy. It's uh, hard to store. Uh, Exactly. Did you have a walk-up? Did you have to no, carry I it up had a walk elevator, up? but it was always a hassle trying to get into a cab. A lot of times, did I you have had, to take it to gigs? I had to take it to gigs, wow. and and if I couldn't get a cab, I'd go on the train station. I always had to have somebody carry it with me. So yeah. Sometimes I just had to roll it. Before I, when I first got the instrument, I literally used to set up and roll it down the street, and wow. then it, it got damaged that way. Then I bought cases for it. They wouldn't fit in cabs and everything. It was always a hassle. And then eventually, or you had to get somebody's. We didn't have a car and I couldn't drive. I was too young or anything. But if somebody's, one of my friend's father had a car or wagon, then he would give us right. a hand or give him five bucks, take us to the game or right. something like that. It was just not pragmatic. I don't know why I dealt with that instrument, but it was always a headache and a hassle, except when I played it. I loved right. it. The incredible sound. Exactly. Now, I used to get jobs because... Sometimes bands couldn't find a piano player, so I would play piano parts on the vibes, and so they would call me. And then with electric pianos and everything like that, and electric pianos being portable, I started getting less calls as a vibe player. So I said, I should learn to play piano. So I went to my mom and dad again. This guy's got to get me a piano, and I self-taught myself piano. And then I started getting jobs playing piano. But I must say, though I enjoyed the music, I was bored most of the time. So when I would do these, like for example, if I played vibes, for every note I played on the vibes, I would do a hundred dance steps. And then on piano, I would go underneath the piano and I would do all these crazy things, playing these real typical one two notes and one one go things. It just bored me. I just I wanted to perform. And yeah, people would dance and everything like that, but I actually wanted attention. Right. <laughs> well, people that 
Look, if people dance, you're doing good, right? Right, of course. Like if you're a DJ and people are dancing to you, you're right. doing good. I want motherfuckers to look at my ass. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, here I am, man. So, uh, now, I would play in these bands and I would play with these real strict old school men that didn't appreciate my Jimi Hendrix antics. <laughs> so, so when I got away from the Coochie Frito and Chitlin Circuit and started doing more La Rock and Soul and that thing all that, I was able to come out like a butterfly. I was just able to be, let that inner showman show off. Basically, I just always wanted to be a professional show off. <laughs> then, when I got into Savannah Brand, I was able to let that come out more. But I was starting to let it come out. So, the way I got into the acting was, any in the bands I performed that was, I bring my theatrics to it. I brought it into Savannah Band, into Kid Creole, and everything like that. So, one day a producer comes up to me when I'm performing with Savannah Band somewhere. And then he comes up to me, he says, look, I wanna, I wanna use you at a, a, for a film. And then I said, oh, okay, so, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm sorry for the delay, I'm just no, trying to get the, the facts together. There was a point where I was performing with Savannah Band and there was a segue point where the Savannah Band Kid Creole existed. Right. So we, myself and Kid Creole, we were both, obviously I know we were both with Savannah Band. Well, who's the band leader again for Savannah Band? Savannah Band was Tommy Brock, uh, excuse me, Stoney Brock. Yeah. He was the leader. Anyways, Savannah Band, there was a lot of craziness going on. At the same time, the leader of Kid Creole, the Coconuts, August know was starting his band. I was co-leader, assisting him on that. So at one point, we were doing both. Wow. We were performing with Savannah Band and the beginnings of Kid Creole. During the Savannah Band show, I met this producer that says, I'm going to call you to do some things. Hmm. I said, cool. So I gave him my number. Fast forward, Kid Creole Coconuts is now in full stride. I get a call from this producer, and he says, I want, you, I want to use you in a film called Easy Money with Rodney Dangerfield. Hmm, okay. This is, this is mid-80s now, right? Or early right, 80s? Early 80s. Right, okay. Early 80s. So, at the time, Billy Joel was doing the soundtrack. Wow. At the time, I was getting ready to go on tour with Kid Crew and the Coconuts, so I already had a commitment. Right. So when they first, I, uh, the producer told me the casting director is going to call me and stuff like that. So when they first approached me, it shows you how this business works. I told them, look, I'm getting ready to go on. They wanted me to do a screen test. I says, look, I'm not going to do a screen test. I, I'm going on tour and everything like that. I'm going to be able to do this. And even if I had done the screen test, it would have meant that I would have to delay me going on tour. Which Yeah, they would have pulled you from the... It right, was already right. confirmed. And right, every, right. Yeah. They would have yeah. just pulled me off or went off the tour or something. Yeah, like. that could have thrown everything So off, the screen test doesn't give you a commitment for the job. Sure. Right? It's an audition, basically. So I tell them, look, I... I won't be able to do that. I've already committed to this thing. So they said, all right, forget the audition. Forget the screen test. We actually want you for this thing. It's like if I had challenged their 
power or something like that. They're like, yeah, okay. Okay, so this is... Um, you were playing, they thought you were maybe playing hard to get or something Yeah, like that. yeah, so that's a well... I, then I got a lawyer to represent me. And I said, find out what they're offering. Right. And he says, uh, they're offering this for you, which was nice money, but not enough to warrant me leaving the group and not right. going on tour and Especially all that Especially because was this like the first tour that you guys were going to be doing? Well, or? we had done a few tours, right. but this was going to be a major, major tour. The Leisure Tour? A major tour. Yeah, but the, wasn't there one called the Leisure Tour? Yeah, but that was this was gonna, this was going to be before the... It okay, was going gotcha. to be... It was like the big breakout tour or something, right? Right, right. right. Our third album was a big hit yes, in Europe absolutely. and everything like that. And it was going to be the Tropical Gangster Tour, Wise right. Guy Tour. Oh, Wise Guy, of course. So yeah, this is like so theaters or big theaters? This or? was big, 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 big. I said, hold it, this could jeopardize my whole position in Kid Creole and make a ton of money and all this potential thing. So I tell him, no, it's not going to be enough money. I told my rep, just tell me. So then they offered it. They offered me something like fifty thousand, which in the early eighties was a ton of money. Sure, actually, I'll take fifty now. Yeah, that doesn't <laughs> sound bad at all. <laughs> and then it, I think it got to like seventy-five, but I said, "No, wow. it's not gonna happen for that." So they said, "We'll give you a song on the soundtrack album. Billy Joe is gonna do it." the soundtrack and I would get a song on that mm -hmm. so I told my rep man I started sweating <laughs> so I told look let's do this if they can get I gave them a figure I forgot what it was if they can pay this figure plus a soundtrack on it then it would make it worthwhile for me to make a, a serious career change so I gave them an outlandish feed kind of annoying they're not going to go for it but right. if they did alright uh, <laughs> I'll be the asshole <laughs> everybody has a price right so uh, so we now mind this during this whole process I did meetings with them I like I took a meeting on with Rodney Dangerfield's manager I forget her name Sydney something Emler or something like that and uh they then balked at the final uh -huh, that's okay. cool and I went on my tour and I was glad that was the way it's supposed to be the journey right. now that same producer didn't give up on me mm, okay he then says calls me again after the tour he says I'm now producing a new TV series called Miami Vice mm. and I want to use you on that and at the time he called me I was not doing anything right. and I didn't even audition for that. He says the casting director is going to call you to do it. And my first Miami Vice was with Bruce Willis. Wow. And the producer was John Nicolella. He was along with Michael Mann. And they just Peter. had the part waiting for you. Like, uh. He liked me. <laughs> and he says, when you come back, give me a call and all that. And I would. And that was my first foray into acting as an actor interesting cool now I done I was in film before that called Get Crazy that Alan Arkish who directed Rock and Roll High School right was in. and I was in that as a musician and and that I got into because I had some time off and I went to see my friend Lori Eastside who was working on the film she had a big part in the film right. and I was just hanging out behind the scenes on the set 
And so there was a part where they needed somebody to play uh, the guitar player in Malcolm McDowell's band. He was also oh, wow. in the film. So Laurie says, hey, look, Mooney's here, and the director knew of me from Kid Creel and all in Savannah Band. He said, hey, you want to play the part? I says, okay, fine. So as a musician, and I don't play guitar, but I faked it on stage. Right, yeah. And I'm part of Malcolm McDowell's band. So that was like the... Uh, early film I was in, but so, not as like a band member, as right. a band member, right. but not as an actor. Right, right. Uh, but the Mammy Vice was my first foray as a. That was a recording. Was that a recurring? Was it a recurring role? In Miami Vice. Yeah, you came back. No, no, I, I did it a few times, but it right. wasn't a recurring role. Right. Actually, the the series cast members used to call me the Ghost because <laughs> I would get killed off and then I'd come back as another character. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> but, uh, but they were always different. I did three of them, and they were different characters. Each one was a different character. That's hilarious. Even if I got killed off, I come yeah. back as a different character. So I was doing a, a Lazarus thing, so yeah, just yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's true uh, versatility as an actor, right there. Uh, I don't know, but I, I go with the flow, bro. Right, but right. It was like I always feel like I did the same thing. I don't know what I did. I had no idea what I was doing. Right. But you've, you've definitely got, like, this this very particular kind of charm that they obviously wanted to, like, have, like, sort of light up the, the screen, like, when I'm sure when you were Yeah, yeah, but I did not know anything of what I was doing. I thought I was an actor, but I really didn't know what I was doing. And actually, it came to surface in the last Miami Vice I did. I'll give you a quick story. Yeah. I'm doing this my advice and they and in it I'm supposed to whisper. And I actually do whisper. What the So TV, it's not the real thing, right? It's a film. So it says no you we can't hear you. <laughs> but I have to say some dialogue right. now. it says that you whisper the dialogue, so right. I forgot what dialogue I go. No, 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 you, we gotta hear you. Do a stage whisper. Right. I didn't know what that was. Yeah. What is, I don't even know what that is. How, how, is, how did well, you Well, a stage. Hey, man, what's going on, man? What are you doing? It's like you get the sound of a whisper, but you project it loud. Sure. Director sensed that I didn't know what he was talking about. So he calls this young actor that was also in the that particular episode, 21, 22. He says, show him the stage whisper. And he did. That young actor that showed me the stage whisper was Benicio Del Toro. Wow. It was his first TV thing, wow. film thing, and all that. Wow. And he, he, and he was your, uh, your stage whisperer. <laughs> right. he, he demonstrated what right. that was for me. I had seen him a few times. We laughed about it. Yeah. Uh, since after, even after he became a big time guy, I haven't seen him in a while. But right. I once went to a thing and he saw me. He was giving a talk or something, a right. lecture, and he saw me in the audience, and he called out to me. It was like, cool. That's amazing. Yeah, so, now after that, I says, I'm never going to be embarrassed like this again. Right. I started taking acting lessons oh, to cool. learn all the technical stuff and the whole rigmarole right. about it. I don't know if it made me a better actor, but at least I knew the technical terms. Sure. So, one thing, I mean, obviously I'd love to know just what... You know, you, you've done a few Spike Lee movies, so those experiences must have been pretty unique onto themselves too, right? Like right, there were, the there first were good and bad things. Mo Better Blues, right? right? That was my first thing with Spike Lee on that. 
which is an incredible film. I mean, you're in the club. Right, I'm the doorman in the club, and what was the? Do you know what, what was the club that they shot it at? Do, do it was a, a, a someplace. It wasn't a club. They oh, created okay, they, a club. Out I of see. There. Okay. I always wondered that if it was an existing New York City nightclub. No, no, no. They created a. They took a place and just created it. Cool. But I forgot where they did it at. It. Uh, yeah, I forgot where it was because right. they. What it is that the door was in Manhattan. The actual club was in Brooklyn, and then right. the alley was somewhere else. <laughs> so, and they Amazing. all put it together, and that kind of stuff. Wow. Yeah, that was with Denzel Washington and Samuel Jackson. A lot of serious people on that film. And yeah, it's amazing. I think it might be one of my favorites that he did. I mean, and Wesley Snipes was incredible in it too. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. The bands. I mean, no, the way I got into that was also an accident. I would go to the Knicks games, right. and one time I ran into Spike Lee. This was before he was real famous. He just came out with "She's Got to Have It." Right. Right, and so Cool was, Days was next. Uh, right, but his first film. Right, she got he started it, yeah. getting a lot of notoriety over that stuff. Right. Spike was a big fan of Savannah Band and, oh, and also cool. Kid Creole, so we ran into it and I didn't know who he was and he came up to me and said, Savannah Band, Shay Shay the Fun, all that stuff. I knew of his name, I just didn't know how he looked like that. But I had read something about me. Sure. Hey, I'm Spike Lee. Said, oh, wow. Boom, boom, boom. Right. Hi, this and that. Fast forward, I, I had heard about this More Better Blues from my agent. Okay. And, and so I went to audition for the drummer. Really? Wow. And then when I went to the audition thing, I don't play drums. I'll fake any instrument. <laughs> Like I tell people, I don't care. I don't I'll let lack of talent stop me from doing anything, except maybe surgery. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get sued. But uh, so Spike gives me a look at the audition. He says, you play drums? And he gives me this smirk. <laughs> so, yeah, I play drums. Because <laughs> I knew I could fake. Because right. for the films, they don't, you're not playing it live. Right. So I said, I could fake it. He didn't buy it. <laughs> he says, look, I got this other part for you as a doorman. So I says, okay, right. cool. So he gave it to me. And the guy that he got on drums, Tang Watts, uh, Tang, uh, great drummer, we played with uh, yeah, Bransford Masadas. Right, yeah, and he, he played that, that role well, especially the uh, oh, he on stage. Yeah, was yeah, yeah, he was great. It was the real deal. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so uh, that's how that came about. Right. But it was disappointing in that I did a lot of nice things on that film that never made. Oh, really? The final Scenes that got cut. cut. Really? It was a pretty long movie, if you remember. Yeah. It was pretty long yeah. as it was. And I shared my disappointment with Spike. Did you? Because I also did looping for that movie. Oh, right. And I said, man, I did some cool things. Even some of the actors said, man, you had a no nothing part that you turn into something. Because yeah. I kept throwing in ideas and doing right. this and all that. Even Denzel appreciated it. Yeah? Do you remember any of those scenes? Like, uh, Yeah, I remember a few things. I'm not going to get into it, right, but okay. I remember sharing my disappointment with Spike. <laughs> right. He told me, well, look, it was we had to do some editing. It was between you and Denzel. <laughs> okay. So you had to go. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay, I, got, I get it. <laughs> 
And then after that, he would call me for different things, yeah, all cool. that stuff. Even some of those things, I didn't know what the hell I was doing on there. I said, why am I here? Right. I would have some readings with like serious top-notch actors. And I felt like such an idiot during those readings because really? I didn't know what I was doing. These people knew it, and sometimes Spike, one, one project I worked on with Spike, he sort of like kept me after school because he thought I was like so off in the reading. Really? <laughs> he worked with me on the side. Right. So he put up with some of my things. What was it? You did He Got Game as well? I did yeah. He Got Game. And then there was one or two other ones, which I didn't write these down, but... Uh is that Girl like, Six, I think. Right, yeah. Girl Six. Yeah. Speaking of that, did and, you... And some things that I wasn't on film, I did voiceovers for. Oh, yeah. Okay. I did... Uh, he did a documentary on Jim Brown, the football player. Right, right, right. I did some voiceovers on that. I did voiceovers for Summer Sam. Oh, really? Okay. And some, some things I even consulted on. Right. Like in the summer, Sam inside the disco clubs and everything like, like that. Like the I, DJ? Wait, what was it? Yeah, because there was a scene. I don't know, because Bobito was the DJ. Uh, Bobito Garcia in New York was the DJ in one of those scenes in Summer Sam. I'm trying to remember. Okay, um, he might have been for Summer Sam, but I wasn't in the film. But yeah, yeah. Well, for example, I've also worked as a music supervisor. So right, for, right. For certain things, I would consult just voluntarily. Right. So, for example, in Summer Sam, it took place in the 70s, and we have what they call the loop group or the Walla Walla group, and doing voiceovers and looping. So sometimes you're working with some people that either were not around or forgotten, right. or, and you're making up talks in the clubs and everything like that, and then using lingo that is of the day, but wasn't back then. Right, right, right. So sometimes he'll let me, hey, you're in charge, and then I'll say, hey, we're not saying those hip-hop phrases yeah, or yeah. anything like that. Or yeah, it's just like an in inaccurate for the time. Right, 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 right. right yeah. So, Did you do consulting on 54? I was music right, supervisor yeah. on that. And I played a DJ on that. I was supposed to do all the DJ parts on that, but I was doing so many things that they got right. somebody else to play the DJ, and I would do a couple of spots as a DJ in there, but I was a music supervisor on that, did consulting. But like for some... Uh, a lot of times, even when I'm an actor, I have I keep my music supervisor hat on, so right. when I hear things that might create problems for the film, I'll right. volunteer the information. Right. So, for example, when certain actors start singing in a scene, mm. sometimes the directors not realize it. They improvise, improvise things, and I tell look, this is going to cost you a quarter of a million dollars. This, wow. this guy's improvising a melody that's not in a public domain. Right, right. I, I worked with Spike also on uh, Bamboozle. Right. And there's a scene in there yeah. where, where the MC he started singing the Dr. Pepper song. Improvising. And I went to Spike, hey, look, this guy's doing this, it. it's going to cost you some money. And he, then Spike would go, hey, don't sing that melody. Right, right. All that kind of stuff. So, and I've done that on other films. Yeah, yeah, I tell yeah. people, don't do that. Or there are scenes where um, you're in a club scene and they have tap music in there and people are singing along to that. Right, right. And I tell people, hey, don't sing along to it, it's just tap. Right. Because they'll switch, they can switch the music out too, right? Is that they what switch it is? the music out, but sometimes they capture the 
audio of the scene. Right. So if you got a scene with, let's say, 100, 200 people right. singing along to it, it could create uh, create problems different ways. Is sure. that uh, if they're singing along to it, you got them to mute all that stuff and, and loop right. all that in. If they record something, it's not. Or if they're clapping or dancing in a certain way to a temp track, and then you try to put new things, it'll limit you because the people doing things a certain rhythm. Right, right, right. So when I'm in, when I've worked those jobs, I've had to supervise those things. But sometimes I'll give it off for free if I'm an actor and I see there are things that's going to create problems in post production. Right. I'll share that with the producers or directors. Right. Yeah, there's not a lot of factors that probably have that kind of background that you're coming there with. Too. Well, a lot of people leave things in post production, right. and me having worked in post production, you, the editors get all these things, and it's like a headache. And it's right. like now they gotta fix this and move this and sync this up and do all that. So you try to tell people to have it right, so that when it gets to the end, they can do the main job, right. which is to create the story. Right, right. Not trying to be bogged down with technical glitches. Because right. of the director is either not aware of situations or don't care, or producer is just talking on his phone with certain things that are going on. So where where are things at now with acting? Are you, is it something that's still kind of like, uh, um, are you still going out for stuff? Or are you? It's, you uh, it's been pretty dismal. I would love to do acting full time, and the last couple of years I've gone out for not a ton of things. So right. I don't get opportunities to go out for things but the things I've gone out for I've been rejected royally mm. so <laughs> well that's not that's not good <laughs> no it's not it's like some, so I gotta create my own project right. well kind of going fast forwarding to that too is is that how um, after so many years of uh, the, you know the 12 the 12 year old genius you have you put a an, a, another solo album out like 20 years later or more yeah. than that you know so and that's how I met you too is through DJ Spun right. and Wrong Music Guys so you know even before we kind of wrap things up a little bit I'd love to just talk about that experience because it's like you know for people that that don't know that record which you're going to have to say the title of it because I know I'll flub it <laughs> if you can remember can you remember it? <laughs> Dancing for the Cabana Code in the Land of Boohoo <laughs> yeah I would flub that which also is like an ode to, or an homage to Savannah Band, too. Exactly, exactly. Well, here it is. I've done a lot of records and everything. And I was pretty much fed up with the whole music business, right. the whole recording business. It just didn't jazz me up anymore, and there was no work on it. And, and, and I wasn't a kid anymore. It's right. like, when I first started to have my name on a record, whether I got paid or not, jazzed me up. Right. I was all into it. After years, after between all my solo stuff and Savannah Band and Kid Creole, and I, I've also worked on other people's records. I've worked with all the notes. I've done the Madonna's Who's That Girl soundtrack. I right. had a song on that, and I've done a bunch of things and all that. So to put on a record, it's not a. It doesn't mean anything to me unless there's something behind it. So I was working with my co-writer and co-producer on that E-Love, Elon Palushko. And he wanted to do some things together. So I'm always getting people that want to do things with me. And it doesn't mean anything to right. me. Because that's just, I'm beyond when I was a kid. Hey, let's get together right and have fun and all that. 
please. I've got so many things in the closet that have not and probably will not see the light of day. Yeah. So for me to create more material that isn't going anywhere doesn't mean anything. Also, at the same time, I come from the era of A&R, right. where you're coming out with stuff and then people are telling you, change this, change that, do this, do that. And I, I've lived with that all my life. And when you have to adapt, I've had to learn along the way not to be married to everything that right. I'm passionate about. Right, right. But I mean, they, they, they pretty much were hands off on, right, on a well, lot of Well, this is what right? I told them. I told them was, all right, look, let's do some music. But I told Elon, yes, we'll do it together, but I'm the final voice on this thing. Right. I decide the direction. I decide if there's a thing of you want this note and I want this note, I'm the senior. <laughs> I have seniority in this thing. Right. Okay. So that was cool. With it. He was right. cool with that. He was totally cool with that. And then when DJ Spun's label came into the picture through Elon's friend, uh, I basically told him too, I'm going to do something which is totally experimental and I come whatever and I don't want no A&R or anything right. like that. And he was cool with that. And that's how that came about. Some things came out great on that thing, some things came out not so great, but everything I loved on it doesn't yeah, matter. I mean, and it, it was a journey. Right. And that's what, and I says, I'm not going to do Savannah Band. I'm not going to do Kid Crew and the Coconuts. I don't know what kind of songs, and I'm not going to do basic song structures on that. No, it's, it's nothing so, like that. And uh, so I says, I'm going to do whatever comes into mind with no, like, I want to sound like this person and make it sound like this, like that, so you can have a hit or anything. This is what I'm going to come out of. Yeah. And they, they were open-minded and pioneering spirit also. And they were cool and it came out and it was a lot of fun it wasn't a big success but to it's me a creatively thing, yeah. it was a big success and a lot of people appreciate yeah, it yeah. and now I may put out again all the rights have been reverted back to me oh, okay, and cool. masters and everything so who knows I might still put something put it out again somewhere on yeah it's Europe worth revisiting for sure yeah. and also I remastered and remixed the former 12 year old genius right amazing there. All right. so I'm gonna try to find a label that will put that out and it sounds great I, I've had some friends in Europe from Croatia remix it oh amazing and okay. it sounds I don't mean really to do a remix actually right. I took the old multi-tracks made digital really? audio tracks out of them and then my friends in Europe Tomo and Miriam by the music they did me a favor and as a gift they remixed it for me. Incredible. I'd love to hear and that. And it sounds amazing. The guy that got this guy named Deuce did it, and it was really amazing stuff. So I want to put that out again with some extra bonus tracks. Right. Some things I've done that, aren't, that I have in storage that are some great stuff. Oh, that, yeah. So back in the day when you did vinyl, you could only put so much sure. records on there because limited the amount of time now with CDs or with digital downloads I could put 12, 14 things in there so I got those 10 tracks on there and a bunch of things and I would like to throw that out but I don't want to throw it out for, just to throw it out I would like to get a company to do a little promotion on it I don't have the money now to do my own promotion and hire somebody yeah there should be some stuff. something behind but if I could partner up with somebody that would do it and that would even do the old album and then I want to do a new record called Blue Moondy which is a compilation of jazz oriented stuff that cool. I've done through the years that I have in storage and there's certain things that I tracks that I have to remix or complete and everything like that 
So I would like to put those things out. Can you still, um, do you still have a vibraphone at your, like, in your I residence? I still do. In my residence, I have the original vibraphones that my dad made. No way. Peace, got me. Amazing. I've had so many of them. I've had 10, 12, but right. through touring, they've gotten destroyed. Right. And then through, as I go up and down the roller coaster of life, and I right. lived in small places, and I couldn't fit them all, or I couldn't afford storage spaces, I either sold them or gave them away. Right, right. But it I always happens. kept the ones, the original ones that my dad got me. A pair of Jenko Vibes. Mm. I can use a new pair of Vibes, but I don't play out anymore, so there's yeah. no reason from an economic POV for me to get them or buy them. I'd rather right. use the money to pay my rent. Yeah. <laughs> but you still, you can still, have, do you ever do you ever play them at, at home and all? Yeah, I do. I play them at home and I, and I, Interesting. I go through periods of practicing sure. wood shedding. My up to this year, I was wood shedding a lot. Then I got tired of wood shedding, right, and, right. And, and I wanted to use the time to work on some other things and right, other right. projects and all that. Yeah. But it is ingrained, man. I can jam. I can still jam. Yeah. If something comes up, I can do it. Right. Within a certain amount of reason, I'll go in there, boom, 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 boom. I'm yeah. ready to go. What are we doing? Right. Thinking I wouldn't hire myself out for certain things. I don't do. I love classical music, but I can't play it. So, I'm not Milk Jackson, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm just me. So I could do my yeah. thing with it. Right, right. No problem, I could play with a Latin band or something like that, but I'm, that, that's my past life. Yeah. I'm trying to look for, like I said, a new thing. So I want to go into stand-up comedy. Yeah. And when I do the stand-up comedy, if I get rejected, at least the overhead won't be that much. <laughs> no, you just walk off stage. Right, right. When I do music, the overhead is tremendous. I've paid musicians, right. I've paid cartage, travel this, travel that, rehearsals and all that. Yeah. Stand up is just me, man. Yeah. I just paid the guests to get to the place. Right. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, the rejection is not, you know, it comes with the territory with that. Right, too, exactly, you know. exactly, exactly. So. Well, I hope I hope that um, you know you have a smooth transition into that. I think I think that uh, I think it's time. I think it might be a, a good uh, phase to, to, to venture into right. that world too. You know? Well, you get into grooves like with right. the acting. Back in the eighties, back in the nineties, I was in a groove. I was living in New York. I've been doing a lot of things and everything like that. I'll share a personal okay. thing with you. The I've. So, the, in the last few years, I got out of the business because to take care of my family. Right. I was able to do the Cabana Code record, but it took a bunch of years to do that because in between my my caretaking services for my parents and other family members, I left LA, went south to take care of them. I had to really leave the business. Right. I couldn't, on a grind, day-to-day, -day, go to auditions, do this, do that, do pro or could afford to do projects that don't pay. Right. Before you can invest your time on, on, on speculative projects and things like that. So, um, in the process of taking care of my family, family becomes, becomes takes priority. Right. Absolutely. I had to leave the loop of show business. I mentioned earlier the whole Facebook thing. The right. reason that came about was because 
I'm taking care of my family and I'm unable to do what I do best. So when I mentioned that personal thing was, I was taking care of my, I moved my parents out here who was getting very ill because I had some other family members that were, so I couldn't really do show business. So I was using social media to keep that muscle up of entertaining. Yeah, to stay connected with people. Right. I wouldn't share my personal stuff, but that I do. Because inside, that's what I do. I'm, that's part of me, being an entertainer. Whether I get paid for it or not, it doesn't matter. I need, if I'm with you, and I can make you smile, or laugh, or whatever, or have you mesmerized even by a dramatic story, that jazzes me up in terms of life. So now, my parents are gone. I'm still taking care of all the family members, but I have my mobility. I am now trying to get back into the business. Mm-hmm. When a lot of years have passed, I don't have the history to give me advantage. So there's a whole new generation that don't know anything about me. So, so I'm sort of starting from the beginning. I'm, in a way, I kind of like it. So I've been going to let's say auditions and doing things and all that from scratch but it's the way I started off no, without a history it's just based on what you can offer right so that's been the challenge for me at the same time is when you're getting older you don't put up with a lot of stuff so sure. there's certain things I'm not gonna do I'm not gonna go out for or whatever right right so it's a challenge right now for me trying to do things because part of me is I have a love-hate relationship with the business of show so it tends to your spirit and your enthusiasm it tends to drain that and you really don't want to do it anymore but I'm not independently wealthy or anything I still got to do that and when I go to bed at night it's in there yeah, I could. You need to get it out eventually. Right. Right? I could. When I'm awake during the day, I could fool myself since I don't really want to do this. I don't care or anything like that. When at night, when all everything is, you're just there by yourself right. and you got your dreams and you got this. That spirit and fire is still in me. It's just during the day I just cover it up, I put a blanket over it, I put <laughs> right. some water, I douse it out with a fire extinguisher or something <laughs> like that. But it's just I'm still living. I yeah. haven't. I don't know when my last breath is, but I know it ain't this moment now as I speak with you. Well, I hope it's Maybe not in five McDonald's. minutes, but right now <laughs> I'm still going. So you gotta live in the moment, in the now. Absolutely. Whatever age you're, whether you're one or a hundred, it's gotta live in the moment. I've met people that in the 90s, even my own parents, still had plans and dreams to the day they, they died. Of course. So, you're going through life's challenges and stuff like that. And I'm trying to get back in, and it's different. It's cruel. This business is... We'll try to cut you up. But I mean, I mean, you could probably, I mean, we could both agree that it's probably always been like that, too. I mean, right. you have to be a bit of a masochist to, to stick around and, 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 you know, step away and come back right. and step away and come back. I mean, right. I've, I've done that many times myself, too. Right. I think all of us, in whatever capacity we're in, right. 
there's a certain amount of, like you said, masochism involved right. in it that you take a lot of things just for that one moment of, right. of pleasure or fulfillment. Well, it's like you said too with the album when when we were talking about your the, your debut album, where it was uh, I forgot exactly the analogy you made, but it was something about you know removing the the mask uh, underneath. It's like you know even like the uh, that classic like theater you know right. icon of like the smiling face and, and the sad and, face. Right, right. Yeah, the sad face. That's right. Tears of a clown also. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, dealing with 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 all the craziness again. But I want to share this with you. I have a teacher friend who called me up earlier a few months ago and says we're having a pre Cuba appreciation night here, and can you come and do something? Right. And I says, well, I'm trying to think, what would I do at this thing? Right. She says, can you talk or do whatever? play a little something just by myself so I go to this grammar school and the students uh, go from from 6 to 12 or 13 so they have these appreciate that so I come in I bring my percussion instruments congas and little shakers and mm -hmm. everything so I decide I'm going to talk about it but I'm also going to demonstrate a bunch of the rhythms and actually play and then have them participate and also do a little dancing just all by myself I go in there and none of these people know who I am these are all kids and everything and even the teachers they're younger than me they don't know who I am or whatever I put on a performance that they absolutely loved right cool and that to me did more for my spirit because it was pure. I have I don't go in there with hit records or hit or anything. I'm not famous right. or anything like that. They don't know anything of me. And I must say I enjoyed that more than when I performed at Carnegie Hall. It was mm -hmm. like it showed to me, oh man, I have it because it's no gimmicks. It was all they just seemed the war me. Yeah. If I had a big name, they'll forgive me. If I can't entertain them or do all that, they just love the idea of looking at right. me or knowing somebody. Right. So I went and I, I performed for these kids and for the teachers, and I did ideas on the spot with the dancing, and I got them involved. And man, they were so into it and so loved it That's that, amazing. that the um, performance was one of my greatest performances that nobody will ever see <laughs> <laughs> well yeah sometimes they are those, those best ones are the ones right. that no one sees and it's just those kids that right. even now that my teacher for a time oh man they're still talking about that ah, there you go. and all that stuff so that's amazing man right right and that was that was your last uh, most recent gig then right um I did that for free so yeah. it was it was but it's still a, you know a gig right, as right. a performance actually I did a, a TV film thing a week ago. Well, that other one sounds a lot more <laughs> Right, right. No, this right. was a more professional thing. All that, right, but right. The, uh, those kind of things that are just off the cuff because it was like last minute I'm trying to get an idea and all that. It's easier if you show up with a band and you play and all that. Sure. But by myself, you're just on stage, which is the challenge of being a stand-up. You're by yourself. There's really no safety. <laughs> no. So. Not at all. So that's what I like. I said, I'm up there in front of all these kids. 
and there's no safety there. And I did it for no money. I just did it for the love of it, just because she had asked. Yeah. So it was cool. Really, one yes. of my favorite things I've done in my career. And yeah. I've done a few things like that throughout where I go to, I've gone to the schools and sure. talked or something. Or the union, even SAG once called a few years back to go speak at the Unified School District. And oh, good. And I would do things. But this was great because uh, it was just me. Just just perform. Yeah, unfettered. Too. Right. Well, right. you've seen a lot. I mean, you've been... Um, you know, uh, writing and performing and uh, in so many different circles for so long. I mean, it, it, it's great to see that, like, there's still, even, you know, we all deal with, like, complicated family, uh, um, you know, the, the, the landscape of family is always... Uh, uh, affects our art and, and especially if we're if we if that if our art is also our uh you know our primary form of survival and income right. so right. it's it's incredible to see like just hear your story too because i've just been a uh, a giant fan of you as an individual for a long time you know and, and, and all the yeah and all the context of it so yeah i hope that uh you know this this next phase will uh, will come to you too, and, and you never know what is right around the corner too. Especially if you uh, put yourself in a new place. Well, the, well, the challenge is you get tired of the struggle, but it's beautiful when you're in the midst of doing the art. Right. But when the window of doing the art gets smaller and the struggle gets bigger, that's where the challenge is to try to. And keep the faith, keep going, do that thing because it's there. So that that's in a way it's kind of exciting to see where I'm gonna do with it. But if I decide not to do anything with it, then I'm actually at peace with that too. It's, and that's a crucial thing yeah. that I don't think most artists have. Uh, it takes a while to get to that kind of point of clarity where it's like, you know that you can do something if you want artistically. You can challenge yourself and like you have in the past, but it's okay if you don't want to go down that road again. Right, right. Well, what I find uh, is there are certain things that are more valuable and more important. My journey is not over and there's more things to do. But I'm taking care of my family. And I'm still taking care of family members and I'm also taking care of close friends that are not in position as I am. Even though I'm struggling and everything, I've been fortunate in that I um, have created situations that keeps me going and still enables me to help others. Well, that's amazing. I and hope it, they know how fortunate they are to have, uh, you know, have you in their lives too. You know. But it gets to a point where there was a point when I had a really a, a lot of money just to use that vernacular. But you get put in situations where you're challenged to step up. There are times where either you're going to help somebody or not. If you say you're a family member, if you're a friend, what does that mean? Sometimes you have to step up either financially, but a lot of times physically. <laughs> where you got to just be present right. right there, and that's a struggle. 
it's easier if you got a ton of money and you just write a check for charity. Sure. But when most you of don't us have, don't have a ton of money. Right, right. When you don't when you're not financially set that way, then sometimes you gotta do it being in body present in body and mind. Do those things. So when I did that for for my family and I'm still doing that, that fulfills me. Even though I complain and I'm the struggle and I look up in the sky and say, why me? And sometimes I think, God, if I had all that money, I could go to Europe, I could do this. Go on some serious dates and <laughs> I could do all these things. But now if I get a royalty check, I said, I got to save this because maybe in, in a month or not, I get nothing. And I, and I got uses to help family, friends, or myself and all that stuff. So I, every day is... When I get income, I don't celebrate it anymore because right. that income is save it for a rainy day. And, right. and boy, there are some thunderstorms out here. <laughs> so I gotta like truly, truly save it. Right. Well, I appreciate it, you taking the, just even taking the time to come uh, sit uh, with me too. No, no, no. It's it's it's, uh, it's fun to share because I've known you actually. Yeah. Now I'm. This type of stuff also, there was a time where I felt, oh, I've got to keep promoting myself, promoting myself. But I don't always do these things now, even when I get inquiries. Like, when Prince passed away, I had known him and have had some interactions with him and stuff like that. And I had some friends that work in the media. There was one friend that worked for one of the major networks. Right that wanted to see if I would be interviewed for that. I said, no, I didn't want to do it. Yeah, because they just want to get a quote. And, yeah, because that's, look, I knew the guy, but I wasn't his brother or hanging out with him every day, so I didn't want to exploit that situation. And there are other people that want to interview me for this, for that. And right. I don't just jump at it. If I have a history, if I know my, if I know what it's for, whatever, but a lot of times I don't even want to I want to talk about this. Yeah, I can it, It's difficult. If I'm promoting something that's different, that's different. Yeah. Right now, I'm not promoting anything. So a lot of times, I don't want to talk about yeah. it. Yeah, sometimes it's those times when the conversations can really get the most interesting, when there isn't a project to, pro right, to, to right, focus on. We right, right. really so, start talking about the, the bigger yeah. picture. But I do want to, you brought it up, I, I was, I, I didn't know if I would or, or even want to ask you, but you know, I just, uh, you know, when you, when you mentioned Prince, uh, uh, there is a period of time when like, like uh, August and you sort of had this kind of Morris Day Prince sort of like, a, um, there was like a world where it was a similar musicianship going on and. Did you guys ever perform together or play together or was it no, no, just kind of no. cross paths? And stuff? Well, a lot of people will say, have told me and have shared and I've seen Ren that the whole thing with Morris Day and Jerome was inspired by myself and all of us. Nah. Even their whole look and everything. We were before them. Sure. Before them because, and I don't know how they came about. I met Jerome, nice guy. I never met Morris Day. But my first interaction, or my first experience with Prince before I ever met him, was he was 17 and did I Want to Be Your Lover. Wow. If, if people were researched that, his look was a whole minimal look. <laughs> yeah. Thong or whatever. Right. All that. It was no 
thing. And at that time, I didn't know anything about Morris Day or his history or anything like that. I didn't know that they had a band together. There's no internet or anything like that stuff. So if you didn't read or see it, so August and I had no knowledge of anything like right, that. Right, right. And Morris Day came up after us. Sure, sure. After the kick group. The, the thing with me in August was basically organic. It, it wasn't like I said, all right, you're going to be the leading man, I'm going to be the sidekick. It, it just no. happened that way. And You see my great friends from the old interviews, too. Like, there was a hilarious banter between the two of you guys. Right, right, right. We just had a groove and a rhythm that way. So whatever, there's a tradition of Abbott and Costello, the duo where you have the straight man and the funny guy. And so I guess we followed in that tradition. But it was organic. I am the way I am. And he is the handsome leading man. I'm the comedic psychic. And we created a project that allowed for those theatrics and everything like that. But it wasn't like we took a piece of paper and said, all right, how are we going to do this? You do this, do this. It just, life was that way. Right. Well, that was the great thing about the 70s and the 80s, that things grew out of a culture, grew out organically. It wasn't Tim Pan Alley, but back in New York and everything, the way you live filtered into your music or into your art, whatever creativity you were doing. So that's how the culture was. Right. It wasn't like you had a roadmap or anything. It just the same thing with Savannah Band. We didn't we didn't even know how the music was going to turn out. Yeah, and the influences are so broad too. You know, it, 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 it's great to look back at it because there's so much of that big band influence. But it's it's a very New York City vibe too. There's funk, salsa. I mean, it's uh, it's all over the place too. So. That's why I love your, when it distills all the way down to just you, it's like this crazy amalgamation of that stuff, but your own like very unique personality is brought into it. So that's why like I, even earlier in the interview, just just my wanting to talk about that, your own music too, it's like a, it's a great kind of like the, the core of like your influences. You know? Yeah, but uh, in my music, uh, part of it is who I am. Right. It's my, well, of course. Yeah. It's my, my, how can I put it? My inefficiencies, my strengths, my weaknesses, my, all that comes into the music. It's, I can't sit. I don't have the talent or the ability to write hit records like, let me write a hit song for Beyonce or this, that. I really have to do things for myself. So, like I said, if I was a great singer, it would be totally different. Because I'm not, my theatrics and my animation comes into it, into the music. I like things big because I'm self-conscious about being five foot three. <laughs> so, I like making things with the big orchestra and the strings and the horns and the bigness right. and everything like that and I think it's a problem I'm making up for the fact that I'd rather have wished I was a basketball player <laughs> seven foot one <laughs> so I try to represent that in my music so that all comes into it it's part of that, that whole culture well hopefully that you know I, I can see that 
you know, translating in, in stand-up, too. Like, you can... Well, I probably understand them. Now, in the acting, I always tend to be over the top, and I don't always feel comfortable bringing it down and trusting myself that I have so much to offer without having to slap you in the face with it. Right, right. And a few times I've done acting things when I was able to tone it down and everything. It felt good, and it was worked pretty good. So I'm, that's one of my challenges as an artist now, to yeah. see where I want to go, what I feel comfortable with. And I have fun doing the acting, but I'm not a great actor. <laughs> and I'm not doing this. I wish I was, but I tried. I go to classes and all this. But I know I just have it deep inside me that I could do really great things. I just have to trust and tap, my, tap into it. It's just taking a long ass time. <laughs> well, that I guess is just that's just life for you, man. Well, right, I well right. I think you're a great person, and that's what really like that that's what translates, man. I gotta thank you too for your time today, hey, too, my man. Pleasure, yeah, I appreciate it so much, man. We had a good one. Yeah. Sorry you. if I was talking a lot. No, nah, that's exactly that was exactly what I was hoping for. Right good luck there. with the editing. Yeah. Bro. <laughs> thank you. I want to thank Koti Mundy for going so far out of his way for doing this interview with me it was really my pleasure he was an incredible human being and an amazing musician i suggest that you try to look up his stuff uh, whenever you get a chance it's definitely out there you might have to dig around but i can assure you it'll be worth the hunt he he's dope he's amazing um that has been the houseless i'm your host and the producer of this show, Peter Agostin, edited and engineered by C.J. Stewart, opening music by Dame Funk and Keith Ide. You can find us on SoundCloud backslash The Houseless Podcast. Follow us on Twitter backslash The Houseless Pod. And please do subscribe on iTunes. Let me know what you think, if you have any ideas, if you'd like to advertise or anything like that. Uh, you can write us at thehouselesspodcast at gmail.com. Once again, I'm Peter Agassin, and you've been on The Houseless. I'm going to end this show with a little joint from my man, Koti Mundi. want to thank you guys so much for listening. Until next week, I'll see you then. Bye-bye.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.